Charles Spurgeon said, give yourself to the church. You that are members of the church have not found it perfect. And I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not. If I had never joined a church till I found one that was perfect, I would never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been a perfect church after I became a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. All who have first given themselves to the Lord should, as quickly as possible, also give themselves to the Lord's people. How else is there to be a church on earth? If it is right for anyone to refrain from membership in the church, it is right for everyone, and then the testimony of God would be lost to the world. As I have already said, the church is faulty, but that is no excuse for your not joining it, if you are the Lord's. Nor need your own faults keep you back, for the church is not an institution for perfect people, but a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace, who, though they are saved, are still sinners and need all the help they can derive from the sympathy and guidance of their fellow believers. The church is the nursery for God's weak children, where they are nourished and grow strong. It is the fold for Christ's sheep, the home for Christ's family. From Spurgeon's sermon titled, The Best Donation, number 2234. This matter of the church is particularly dear to me as someone who grew up in the church and very much took the church for granted and just thought, oh, here we go again, another Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, go on visitation with my dad on Thursday nights. Um, just our whole life revolved around the church, and I didn't really have much of a choice in the matter. I didn't have a choice in which church I would attend or how much I would attend or who my Sunday school teacher was or any of these things. It was all chosen for me as a pastor's kid. So uh, then, in particular, as I uh, got into Reformed theology as a teenager, that tension grew even more, where I felt not only do I have to go here out of obligation, but also uh, I would perhaps rather go someplace that is a little bit more Calvinistic. So then I went to college, and college was similar in that church was mandated, and you had to report it. And if you didn't report, or if you reported absences, you would be in trouble. And there, were, there was a list of approved churches and a list of unapproved churches, and so you, your selection was very um, limited. And then I went to a conference in 2010, maybe 2011, February of my sophomore year, and it was called Life by the Book. If you want to go on Sermon Audio and listen to the sermons, you can find them from Hampton Park Baptist Church, the Life by the Book conference. And in that conference, I heard preaching about ecclesiology for the first time. I'd never heard that before. I'd never heard preaching about the local church and in that conference, the pastor, I believe his name was a guy named Brad Bauman, he pressed in on us on the necessity of joining a local church. This was not a thing that we did in my circles. We just attended. We attended the church that I grew up in. I wasn't a member. We, we didn't really focus on that. We didn't have a membership class. We didn't have processes or, or methods or announcements related to membership. It was just, if you were so inclined, you could come and um, receive a copy of the church statement of faith or something and sign it, and then you're in. 
And in college, it was the same way because you were assigned, you had to go to church. So it wasn't something that you voluntarily chose or that you picked, but rather you just had to. And so there, that the end of sophomore year, going into junior year, I resolved that I would find a church and join it. And through a long, convoluted sequence of events, I found a church, or a church found me, and I ended up joining a church down in Georgia called Grace Baptist Church in Decula, Georgia, and that would end up becoming my sending church, which sent me to New York three years later. That whole series of events, joining my first church, starting to give financially on a regular basis, um, being invested in the church. Those things all completely changed my perspective about the church. I suddenly started caring. Hey, pastor, how, how's the church doing financially? Are we, do, do we have enough? Like, I see that the giving dipped in the second week of the month. He's like, oh, don't worry. It, it goes up at the end of the month or it goes up at the beginning of the month or something. I don't know. But I, I started caring about things because I was actually committed to the church. I cared about the attendance. I cared about, you know, why are people coming and going so much? There's such a turnover in this church. Oh, it's because we don't have a membership class. Well, pastor, what if, you know, would you be interested in starting one? And then like, I could teach the class that you're teaching. And if you did a membership class, I think that would help uh, limit the turnover. And he's like, well, that would be amazing. I just haven't had someone else to, to cover the main class. And I said, well, let's do it. And he was delighted and I was delighted. And we were all just thrilled with the situation. And then I put all my energy into recruiting students to come be a part of the church, and we ended up with 15 students in two van loads driving two hours each way to and from this, uh, from college to the church and back. And it, it was like um, the experience that probably Trenton felt coming back from the church retreat, where you have that spiritual high after this intense time of spiritual encouragement. But for us, it was every Sunday, and it began at around 5 a.m. and ended around 11 p.m. each week. We spent $200 in gas every month, but it was worth it because the church was the dearest place on earth to me. Even though it still wasn't as aligned theologically as maybe I would have hoped for, the pastor was, was a cautious, moderate Calvinist instead of a full-chested, confident Calvinist who would claim it from the pulpit. But nevertheless, it was my church home. So since from that point, um, the topic of the church has grown in its importance in my mind and in my heart. And so I'm glad to be able to speak tonight about this topic, the church. So we have some slides, and these two main points will be the big framework that all the other subpoints hang under. So we have first off the universal church, and then secondly, the local church, the universal church and the local church. The universal church, you can go to the next slide. The universal church is all Christians through all the ages in every part of the world. The universal church, hence the word universal, refers to all Christians in all time. It is important for you to understand, just have this tucked away in the back of your mind, um, there are some Christians in weird sects that don't believe in the local church or in, in the universal church. They would say, no, I only believe in the local church. I don't believe in the universal church. And I would say, well, what about all those Christians throughout the last 2,000 years who have been part of local churches? Are they not Christians? Are they not part of the body of Christ? And I don't know if it's fortunate or unfortunately, but I've never actually had a face-to-face conversation with one of these people. I've just seen it online and gotten into like, email exchanges with some of them. But the reality is that 
Peter, Paul the Apostle, Matthew, Mark, um, the early church fathers, the reformers, um, the, the Puritans, the people who founded this country, they're, they're all Christians, and as Christians, they're part of the universal church, the universal body of Christ. Um, let's move forward into talking about the marks of the church. The, the historic universal church has identified marks or characteristics of the church that make the church the church. And out of these, there are some identified in the Nicene Creed. These are four in particular. And it is that the church is one holy universal apostolic church or one holy Catholic apostolic church. So these four, one holy universal apostolic, are things we'll speak about very briefly right now. It, the church is one. Jesus prays for this in John 17. If someone is truly a Christian and you are truly a Christian, then you are united uh, not only with Christ personally, but with each other. You are one in Christ. And this is the way that you can meet a true believer on an airplane that you just said hello to five seconds prior and you find out that they're a Christian and you feel this instant connection, this brotherhood or sisterhood that, that you are united with this person. It's because you are in fact one. And you would have that, you would have that experience and that feeling if you ran into Martin Luther on the airplane, or if you ran into John Knox on the airplane, if you ran into a historic Christian that, that died hundreds of years ago, but you encounter them and, and you interact with them, you're like, oh, you're a believer. I'm a believer too. You are one. And that is the true, the, the nature of the true church. The true church is one. It is united because it is united in Christ. Secondly, the church is holy. The church is holy because God is holy. And because God has placed his Holy Spirit in the church. The church is set apart by God. That is the meaning, the core meaning of the word holy. It is that God has set apart his people for himself. The church is set apart by God for God. The church is holy. So it's one holy, second, uh, thirdly, universal, or the creed says Catholic. But Catholic should be understood to be lowercase c, universal church. This is the global or universal church over all time in all the world. This is what the term Catholic refers to. And when the Roman Catholic Church uses the term Catholic, they view themselves as the Roman universal church. This is the church of Rome, but it is the church, and that is how they view themselves. Obviously, I do not view them that way, and hopefully you don't either, because our confession identifies the Pope as the Antichrist. So hopefully you do not view the Roman Catholic Church as the true church or the Pope as the true vicar of Christ. But nevertheless, this word universal or Catholic is in the creed and it is a helpful, right, appropriate, necessary term for us to understand that there are Christians in Africa right now that are truly Christian. And there are Christians in South America and in Asia and um even in New Jersey, that are truly Christian. <laughs> so, <laughs> and they are part of the same body of Christ that you and I are. So this is the universal church. Fourthly, apostolic. Apostolic. This is not like a church you would see in Harlem, an apostolic church. This is a church that is handed down from the apostles. It's coming to us through the apostles. Um, now, taking this concept and pushing it to a 
huge degree is part of how um, both Roman Catholics and Anglicans come up with the um, priest and, and bishop concept uh, because they believe in a secession of the priesthood. And while I reject Catholicism and I think Anglicanism is sheer nonsense, um, there is something to this idea of the apostolic nature of the church that is handed, handed down from generation to generation and that the faith we believe has been given to us by our fathers in the faith. Um, hopefully each one of us were led to Christ by certain people and those people were led to Christ by certain people and so on. And the, the daisy chain goes back to the apostles. In the seminary that, uh, well, Southern Seminary, um, where I did my MDiv, the professors who founded it were um, old Princetonians. So they went to Princeton. They graduated from Princeton. The founders of Princeton went somewhere who studied under professors who went somewhere, who went somewhere, who went somewhere, and it, it goes back. And some of the older professors at Southern who have a lot of time on their hands traced their theological Laying, laying on of hands or their ancestry from well, themselves to their professors to their professors to their professors through Old Princeton, through the Puritans, and back to men like John Calvin. So they could trace this genealogy to see that Calvin taught someone who taught someone who taught someone who taught someone who, 500 years later, taught a guy named Andy sitting in a classroom. Now, you obviously have this difficulty of the Dark Ages and what happens with a guy like Martin Luther, who is not really led to Christ by any particular person. It's through reading the Bible on his own, and he wasn't um, necessarily mentored by others. It was largely a work of God in him, and at that point, the truth of the gospel was nearly completely snuffed out, and the light of uh, the true church was virtually non-existent. Well, hence the quote from Spurgeon, that the Lord uh, has seen fit to use weak and sinful people to accomplish his purpose throughout the ages. The apostolic nature of the church is something to remember, to keep in mind, and that means that the church has been handed down from the apostles. These are the Nicene marks, and then there are, secondly, or next, the Reformation marks, The Reformation marks are these two, right preaching of the word and right administration of the ordinances. These are ones that men like Luther and Calvin identify and saying, now these are the marks that make a true church. Now, obviously, if I either remembered when I studied this 10 years ago or reread whatever books I have that talk about this, I could go into much more detail on these two points. But these points are tricky in that, what do you mean by right preaching of the word? Well, rewind, you know, take a few steps back and go back to the Reformation era and how much preaching of the word was there in the time of Martin Luther or the men who translated the Bibles that all the Bible translation societies are named after, such as Wycliffe Bible Translators or Tyndale House Publishing. Well, there wasn't a lot of Bible preaching. Why was that? Well, because the Bible was in... Latin, and the people didn't speak Latin, and most of the clergy were illiterate. So there's no Bible preaching. 
They're just doing their rituals and going through their routines. So there is virtually no preaching of any kind, much less right preaching of the word, which is why the, the most basic element of the Reformation was this work of Bible translation. That was the foundation for the whole operation, which is why, for the most part, each of these reformers were, at a, at a fundamental level, they were translators. They were linguists. They were uh, men who are taking the Bible from the ancient languages and putting it into the languages of the modern men. And this includes men like Martin Luther, who translated the German copy of the Bible. So first, the first um, Reformation mark is right preaching of the word. The second comes with an even larger parenthetical, parenthetical remark or an asterisk, which is like right administration of the ordinances. Who of the reformers would we say administered the ordinances rightly? As Baptists, this is where it gets a little awkward. Because if you press it, if you push the analogy, you would say, well, okay, if you, I believe that believers' baptism is the right administration of the ordinances. And I believe that certain things like consubstantiation are wrong. And so if that is so, and I certainly believe that infant baptismal regeneration is wrong, then what do you do? And I had this conversation with Rory uh, Wilson, Doug Wilson's grandson, who was with us for about a year. He's like, so are you saying that all those people for a thousand years or 1500 years weren't really Christians or they weren't really part of the true church because they were Catholic or because they were not doing the ordinances properly. And see, this is how the the mental gymnastics go. Nevertheless, we want to do right, right preaching of the word and right administration of the ordinances. And it's helpful to remember that our ultimate authority is not church history, not church tradition, not, well, so-and-so did it this way. Our ultimate authority is what the Bible says. As Luther said, My warrant is the word of God. None else is worth believing. So let's moving forward to our next point, the next slide. Um, Yeah, foundation. So the foundation of the universal church, Christ and the apostles. Matthew 16, 18, this is Peter's confession, very famous text, which hopefully all of you are familiar with. Uh, Jesus says to Peter, I say to you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell or Hades shall not prevail against it. There's much debate about the language, the, the, the tenses and the wording of this verse. I think a lot of that misses, uh, misses the point. It certainly misses the point. It wasn't given to us to, to be a subject of debate. Um, but the thing is, when you visit the location where this incident took place, which is um, Caesarea Philippi, when you're arriving there, you turn the corner, which you see when you, you walk up on the place is you see a giant rock. You see this mountain. And this mountain has at the base of it all of these pagan temples. One of those temples is a temple to the god Pan, who is the god of the underworld, who um, plays these pan pipes and is effectively understood in some way like the, the, the god of hell, who's in charge of hell. And in that temple to pan, 
behind it, or if you were to enter it, behind it is this pit filled with water, which was understood to be the gateway to hell. And so that's their context. That's where they're walking literally as Peter and um, Jesus and the apostles are having this conversation. And so Jesus says to him, I say to you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And he's saying this with a giant rock in the background and the gates of hell in the background. In other words, we're going to win. We will conquer. Jesus and the apostles, the foundation, Jesus being the chief cornerstone, the apostles being the foundation of the church. 1 Corinthians 3.11 says, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.20 says, Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. By the way, if you haven't, if you want to use the, the notes um, that are on the app, and you can go to the same place to find them that you did last week. Uh, hit sermons, then probably Wednesday, and then tonight's lesson, Wednesday worship. First Peter 2, 4 through 5 says, Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up to a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So this universal church, it's built by Christ. Jesus himself is the chief cornerstone. He is the foundation. And then he says that his uh, apostles and the prophets are part of that foundation as well. Now let's get into the metaphors of the church, metaphors of the church. The Bible uses lots of these. Uh, I've listed eight, and we'll talk about eight for tonight's lesson. The first one, the most pressing metaphor is that of a body and members or parts of the body. There are tremendous implications for this metaphor. This is where we literally get our word member from or membership. This is also what we're talking about when we talk about being a church member. We mean you're a member of the body of Christ. Romans 12, 4 and 5 says, For we have... For as we have many members in one body, but all members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. The human body is made up of many different body parts. They have unique functions and roles according to their design. These many parts come together to make a functional body that serves for the good of the body at the direction of the brain, the head. And in our metaphor... The body of Christ serves at the function for the benefit of Christ, at the direction, sorry, at the direction of Christ. Your right arm is just as much a part of the body as your left knee is a part of your body, as your thyroid is part of your body. The body part that doesn't want to be joined together with the rest of the body cannot function at all. It certainly cannot function in a healthy or useful way. Imagine an eyeball that's not connected to the brain or body just rolling down the street, doing its own thing, saying, I don't want to be involved with you guys. The rest of the head, you give me a, you give me a headache. In the mouth, you talk too much. I just want to look around, peace and quiet. It wouldn't work. It's ridiculous. That's what a professing Christian is like who says, I'm not going to join the church. 
I'm going to do my own thing. I'll come and visit, but I'm not going to like be connected. I'm not going to be committed. First Corinthians 12, 12 says, for as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body. So also is Christ. First Corinthians 12, 26 and seven says, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. So what this means is if you are part of the body, you are a member, you are committed, you are known and you are suffering, the rest of the body knows, the rest of the body feels it. Well, how do they know? How do they feel it? Well, because membership actually means something to actually be connected to, a, to, to the body of Christ. Uh, Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 says, and he, gave him, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. This is part of the way I, I, I didn't grow up thinking. I didn't grow up thinking that it is about the growth of the body. I grew up thinking it's about exclusively the individual. Now, I'm passionate about individualism. I'm not a collectivist. I'm not a communist. But the body of Christ, the church, is the bride of Christ. It's not you yourself. It's not you by yourself. It's we, it's us. Colossians 1.18 says, He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. This metaphor of the body is the first one we're talking about. The second one is the flock. The flock. The shepherd or sheep metaphor is quite vivid for ancient Israel. I forgot, I was going to bring a copy or two of a book about this, and I have it in my notes, but I forgot. So the flock metaphor, the shepherd-sheep metaphor, uh, it goes clean from, from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, you have Abel as the first shepherd described in Genesis uh, 4, I think is it's referenced, all the way through the book of Revelation. This Metaphor is vivid for ancient Israel, and it is as well for the modern students of biblical themes. For the modern student who goes ahead and studies and reads up, reads a book about shepherding. I don't think most of us have spent a lot of time on a sheep farm, but God used the imagery of sheep and shepherd on purpose, and there are countless uh, lines of connection between the sheep metaphor and us as Christians who are the sheep of the Lord's pasture. Um, so I have a book recommendation. I have a couple copies. I'm trying to get rid of like some of these excess copies of books because I have too many books and I certainly don't need five or 10 copies or a hundred copies of the same book. So um, a shepherd looks at Psalm 23 by Philip Keller. If you would like this book, raise your hand. All right. We will see how many I have. And I will bring them when I get the chance, and I will keep you three in mind. It's a fascinating book. Uh, Philip Keller is not related to anyone else that we would know of who has the same last name. 
Philip Keller was actually a, a shepherd. Like, he's like a farmer type guy. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Psalm 103, Psalm 100, verse 3, know that the Lord, he is God. He has made us. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Isaiah 40, 11, we spoke about this at the retreat. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. This is the good shepherd discourse. Uh, John 21, 16, Jesus says to Peter in his restoration, he says, feed my sheep repeatedly three times. 1 Peter 5, 2, Peter, who has been restored and instructed by Jesus to feed his sheep, then is writing to his listeners, his audience, telling them to shepherd the flock of God, to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, not under compulsion, not for shameful gain, not because you're getting rich off this, but because you want to, because you love the Lord and you love the people. So you shepherd the flock of God. I love this image of the flock. If you haven't studied the shepherd sheep metaphor, uh, another wonderful book. I love this book. It's called um, uh, Shepherds After My Heart, My Own Heart, uh, by by Laniac, L-A-N, Laniac, L-A-N-I-A-K. And that book considers the motif of shepherd throughout the entire Bible. Uh, it's a gray book. It's a very boring type, uh, cover. The third metaphor to discuss is bride. The Lord uses the image of a husband and wife to refer to his relationship with his people, in particular calling the church his bride or his people his bride. Isaiah 62, 5 says, And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Ephesians 5, 25 and following says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but holy and blameless. This is the way Christ loves his people. I think so often we we only even talk about that text at weddings and it's just like, hey, it's a wedding sermon. And we lose sight of the fact that this is about God and his people. That Christ actually loves the church in this way, for this purpose, to accomplish these ends, that of washing the church with the water of the word and to accomplish something in the church, which is to make the church radiant and pure and spotless and white, and holy, and blameless, because he pulls us up out of the mud. He pulls us up out of our sin, and then he washes us and cleanses us, and he does it through his word. 2 Corinthians 11.2 says, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Paul is speaking about the Corinthian Christians, and he again uses this bride metaphor. Revelation 19, verse 7 says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. 
Revelation 21.2 says, Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is the agenda that God is working out that he describes for us in Ephesians 5, to prepare the church for himself for that radiant day. The fourth image after bride is building. We live here, most of us live here in New York City. We see a lot of skyscrapers being built. There are many ways in which this metaphor of a building could be um, unpacked or, or examined. But just think about a tall building. 1 Corinthians 3.9 says, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. Why does he call us a building? Well, because he's building us. He's got a plan in mind. He has the blueprints. He has the image. He has the, the sign on it that says, Hey, uh, this c- coming soon to this address. Commercial, residential, mixed use, 40 stories tall, 440 feet tall. I've got these plans. This is what we're building right now. In the Bible, it tells us what God is building in us. So think of uh, Ephesians 2.10, where his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. God has saved us in order to create in us a certain outcome, and that outcome is a building that looks a certain way. Well, it looks like Jesus. Uh, Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 says, Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built up on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. First Peter 2, 4 and 5 says, Coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house. So I love the, the skyscraper image because the skyscrapers are being built up and they just keep going and going and going. So God is building us up as living stones in a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The fifth metaphor to consider is that of a nation or citizens. It's important to remember that while Judaism is centered on the Jewish people, the church is an international body made up of people from every nation. Yes, there were a, a handful, a smattering handful of Gentiles that were brought into what we would call the, the Old Testament church. But that, that is by far the exception. Israel in the Old Testament is an ethnic people. What binds them together is that ethnic lineage, being descendants of Abraham. But the church, on the other hand, is an international body. It's made up of people from every nation. This is the reason why in Acts 10, there's this whole vision about the sheet coming down from heaven and on that sheet has the different types of animals that are unclean. And the Lord speaks to Peter and says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Eat these things that are unclean. And then he recognizes that through that vision, what he's being instructed is that the gospel is going to the Gentiles. That the Gentiles are also part of the body of Christ. 
God calls his, his people, he calls us citizens. He calls us citizens of a new kingdom, the kingdom of God. This is one of the interesting things found in, in the beginning of Acts, Acts chapter 1, and then also um, coming at the end of uh, Luke. So the last chapter of Luke, what, Luke 24, and then Acts chapter 1. Uh, remember that Luke and Acts are two volumes, volume 1 and 2, of a two-part series by the guy named Luke, who writes about the works that Jesus is doing in the beginning, and then now here is the works of the Holy Spirit, the works of Jesus through the, through the Holy Spirit by the apostles in the book of Acts. And so the book of Luke ends with this question of, are you going to build your kingdom? Are you going to restore your kingdom? And then in Acts, it raises that question, and he says, it's not for you to know the times or seasons, but you will receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the outermost parts of the earth. And what you see here is that he is building his kingdom, but it's not the type of kingdom they have in mind. They're envisioning a a brick-and-mortar kingdom. They're envisioning a, a, a very literal earthly kingdom. And he says, we're not doing that. That's not our program. This is the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. We do not cease to be citizens of whatever our country of origin is when we are joined into the kingdom of God, but rather we gain a a new citizenship. It's sort of like Mark who has multiple passports. We We get another passport. We still have our earthly citizenship of wherever it is we're from, but when we are joined into the kingdom of God, we now have a passport to the kingdom of heaven. And that that one actually supersedes the others, and it's much more precious to us than all the others. We gain this new citizenship, which is eternal and has effects, which will override our national citizenship. In other words, You who are my brothers and sisters in Christ but are not American citizens are closer to me than those who are American citizens but are not brothers and sisters in Christ. First Peter 2, 9 and 10 says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Ephesians 2.19 says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Philippians 3.20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews eleven sixteen says, Now they desire a better country, that is a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. I think that it is to the church's detriment that over the last number of, I don't know, 10 or 20 years, there's been this huge fall-off in preaching about heaven. There's been this, this massive reduction in preaching about heaven, and I don't see that trend reversing for a number of theological reasons. I think that it is now not in vogue to preach about heaven. 
but rather it is in vogue to preach about building heaven on earth. And I think that that flatly contradicts many of these passages. Now they desire a better country, that is a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. He has prepared it. He has already prepared it. This is something that's, that's done. Not waiting on you and me to get it together. Galatians, Galatians 6.16 says, And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Say that to a group of people that are not Israel. To say that to a people that are Gentiles, that they are part of the Israel of God. They are part of this true, this true body of Christ, the real citizens of the kingdom of God. The sixth metaphor is priesthood. Priests are ones who offer, uh, offer worship uh, to God. They offer sacrifices to God. They have access to God. They can go into the temple. They can go into the place where the presence of God is. They're not turned out. They're not, they're not stopped by a sign that says, you may not go any further. This is how things were in the, the temple period. There were multiple fences that certain people could go only in certain places. So there's the court of the Gentiles. It's where only the Gentiles could go. If, if you were a Gentile, you could not go past a certain sign. If you went past that sign, you could be killed. There's also next the court of the women. So the Jewish women were allowed to go the next step further. But again, there'd be signs there that say, women can't pass this certain place. And then beyond that, Jewish men could go. And beyond that, priests could go certain distances. And then beyond that, the high priest could only go into the Holy of Holies once a year. And he was selected through what effectively amounted to a lottery system. So a lot of these priests, they would wait for years and years and years and years and years in order to have the opportunity to go into the Holy of Holies, the place where the presence of God dwelt. Being a priest was a big deal had all of these special privileges to it that a normal person could not access. So for God to call us, his people, priests, is a big deal. It's a much bigger deal than what I am capable of explaining to you right now. One of the points that make Baptist Baptist, it's the P in the B-A-P-T-I-S-T acrostic, is the priesthood of the believer. Did you know that Baptist was an acrostic? So you take, a, take your pen, write B-A-P-T-I-S-T in a vertical line, and you write priesthood of the believer next to P, you'll have one of your letters for your acrostic. i give you a couple more. I can't give you them all right now because I didn't grow up in the type of church that made a huge deal of this, but one would be believer's baptism, B. A would be autonomy of the local church. P would be priesthood of the believer. Here we are, we're doing this. T would be two ordinances, baptism and Lord's Supper. I, I do not remember. S is separation of church and state. Because Baptists, they do not take government funding to pay for their pastors and their clergy and their, because their, that's, that's why they were being killed back in Europe. 500 years ago. Um, The next T is for 
two offices, I think, of pastor and deacon. And then the last S, I don't, I don't remember. Something like saved membership or regenerate membership. And I'll try to get back to you on what the I stands for. We could just say irresistible grace, but that's a different acronym. Uh, so Exodus, Exodus 19.6 says, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Moses, speaking to the nation, to the people, uh, well, receiving this message from God to give to them. And then 1 Peter 2.5 quotes it. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Revelation 1.6 says, He has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Revelation 5.10 says, We had, he, and, sorry, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. This is a big deal. If for no other reason, then this means that you can go directly to God without a mediator. You can go into the presence of God without having to call me first. You can confess your sins to God without having to call me or your roommate or your mom or your husband or wife. You can just go directly to God. Because God has made us a kingdom of priests. We're all priests unto God. So we can go directly to him. We can worship him. I think we forget how significant the gap was between the people and God in prior eras. Oh, Nate says, I is for individual soul liberty. Thank you. Individual soul liberty. Uh, that basically is like um, these issues of conscience and um, do I control, am I your conscience? Do you have, uh, you, you answer to God for yourself. Uh, next, point seven, branches. God says that one of the metaphors for the church is that of branches. The church is not the root, the church is not the stump, but rather is a growth which has been grafted into or grown up out of the root. Gentiles are grafted in. The root of Jesse is what we're grafted into, this seed of David, which is Jesus. John 15, 5 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Romans eleven seventeen says, if some of the branches were broken off and being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Uh, verse 19 and 20 says, you will say then branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off and stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. Verse 23 says, They also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. Big reason for why I hold the historic premillennialism. I do believe there is a future for ethnic Israel. 
God is able to graft them back in, though in the moment, we are true Israel, as well as Jews who believe they are true Israel. There's no grounds for anti-Semitism here, but rather for love for and prayer for our unsaved friends who are Jewish. So the branch, um, branches metaphor. Uh, Number eight, field. The farmer metaphor is brought into view. God is the one who causes our growth and he cultivates us like a farmer who works in a field and tends to his crops. He sees what we need and he makes it happen. Now the farmer, no metaphor is perfect, by the way. No metaphor can be taken to its, its extreme and without losing something or without making a false uh, conclusion. But the Lord actually has the ability to see that, oh, these people need rain. I will send rain. Your farmer can't do that. But the Lord can. He sees that we need rain or fertilizer or the, the weeds are growing up in our fields. And so he attends to our needs. The way a good farmer would look after his field to look after his crops. Isaiah 61.3 says, To console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. 1 Corinthians 3.9 says, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. There is another metaphor of, or another reference, which is um, a different application of the same word of field in Matthew 13. The field is the world, the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the wicked one. Yes, that's in the Bible. No, it's not being used in the same way that Paul is using it in 1 Corinthians 3 9. Please remember when you are doing your interpretation, when you're doing hermeneutics, that what is more important than word root. What's more important than the dictionary definition of a word is the usage of the word and the context of the word, which will tell you what it actually means in that particular time, in that use. So this is all uh, um, point one, universal church. Point two, local church. Local church. A local church is a group of baptized believers united in covenant to be the church and to do what the church is commanded to do. I've said this multiple times before, but I would hope that each of you would have this definition memorized, that you would all be able to tell me, what is a church? Who are we? What is PBC? What, what makes us us? What are we all about? And for you to say, well, we are a group of baptized believers united in covenant to, do what the church is, to be the church and to do what the church is commanded to do. We are not uh, united together to be a baseball team. As wonderful as that would be, that's not our purpose. Because if it was, we'd have to get rid of a lot of people. We're also not united together to be a bowling <laughs> bowling club or t- tennis club or any of those other things. Rather, no, we are united to be a church. We're not united to be a Bible study, a Bible class, a college, a seminary. No, no, those are fine things, but we are united to be a church. It's like, well, what makes you a church? Well, I declared it. We said, we're a church. We came together and said, we're going to be a church in the same way that you get together with a group of friends and say, you're going to do anything and you do it. And then if you want it to be recognized by the government, then you go down to the courthouse and get some legal paperwork that recognizes you as an entity. So our church, 
a local church is a group of baptized believers united in covenant to be the church and to do what the church is commanded to do, which raises the next question, what is the church commanded to do? Well, we have 12 of these things, which each of you have gone through if you are a member of this church. You've all gone through this list, and if you haven't, it's on the website, probably on the app somewhere as well. The 12 things that make up either our vision statement or our future or our about section. The church is commanded to do, well, expository preaching, congregational singing, meaningful membership, personal and corporate evangelism, committed discipleship, baptism and communion, spiritual fellowship, sacrificial giving, accountability and discipline, qualified leadership, um, probably what, missions and prayer. And these are different from the Nicene marks of the church, the, the four that we talked about earlier, or the two uh, reformational marks of the church. These come from what would be called the nine marks of a healthy church with the addition of three that didn't make the first cut when they did nine marks of healthy church. They forgot worship or missions, prayer, and giving. And then like, wait, actually that should be part of this too. So they came back 25 years later and said, here's three more. Today, while we're talking about this, I don't, I no longer endorse the ministry called Nine Marks. Um, they went in a very hard woke direction about 2016. Um, so their content has, has been heavily tainted by that. Nevertheless, a lot of their content is good. So use discernment as you read things. One of their very best books is Compelling Community. It's a white book. Um, as far as I know, it's, it's fantastic and is not affected by any of the uh, things like Summer of Love, George Floyd, any of those things, um, but rather it predates all of that. Um, so we have this list here of 12 things, and these are the 12 marks or characteristics of a church, what a church is commanded to do in scripture. So number one, expository preaching. Our website says, expository preaching is much more than a buzzword. It is fundamentally preaching the word. The message of the text is the message of the message. The sermon not only considers the text in its historical and grammatical context, but also faithfully shows its connection to the law and the gospel, bringing the message to bear in the hearts of the listeners. Secondly, congregational singing. We don't come to Sunday worship to watch a performance but to give our worship to God. We sing because Christ commands us to sing. We sing out of gratitude in our hearts for the salvation we have received. Third, meaningful membership. In an age where church membership has fallen out of favor, we continue this Christian practice. We see church membership clearly taught in scripture, places such as 1 Corinthians 12, and we recognize that it has far greater meaning than merely making a donation or signing a form. Our members give credible evidence of conversion and have been baptized by immersion as believers. The church's membership under this is believers that have been baptized. And beyond that, they are believers who have been baptized who also agree with their doctrinal statement, at least to a fairly large degree. What is a believer? Well, a believer who is a person who has a credible profession of faith. What's a credible profession of faith? Well, it's a person who not only knows the truth of the gospel, but they have had some sort of encounter with it, namely conversion. If somebody's had a mystical experience, but they don't have a knowledge of the gospel, this is not what we would call a credible profession of faith. It is suspect. Because everybody in every religion has had some sort of mystical experience. Whether you're talking about 
Christianity or New Age or any other thing. You, you, you have all sorts of spiritual experiences, and the fact that you had an experience does not make you a Christian. But you need to both know the gospel, know Christ, and have been born again. And then next, being baptized. And in our, our way is immersion as a believer, because we are a Baptist church. Point four, personal and corporate evangelism. When Jesus said you must be born again, he meant it. We strive to share the gospel over the course of our daily lives, as well as during more planned times of evangelism as a group of believers. Corporate evangelism provides an excellent opportunity for a less experienced believer to observe a more mature believer share their faith. You all should be proud of me for those five or so of you who know about the uh, doctrines of demons controversy last week uh, where I posted a video uh, clip of the sermon, about a five-minute clip. It got almost 200,000 views, and um, a certain person got rather upset about it. I saw another doctrine of demons today, but I held it back, and I didn't say anything because I've got other stuff to do besides argue on the internet such as prepare a message for tonight. Um, but yeah, the thing I saw today, which I was like, this is, a, this is another doctrine of demons. And that was um, evangelism is an idol in the church today. The church focuses too much on evangelism. I wanted to throw my hat down. I wasn't wearing one, but I wanted to throw my hat down and say this is the most pietistic nonsense I've ever heard. This is a doctrine of demons. This comes straight from Satan himself. This is not something that Jesus would say. What is evangelism? Evangelism is the proclamation of the gospel. It's not twisting people's arms into praying a sinner's prayer. No, evangelism is the proclamation of the gospel, which is ultimately proclaiming the glory of Christ in its greatest, most pure form. That is not an idol. And if you think that can be an idol, your definitions are all messed up. If you are, in fact, being genuine in this and you're not some kind of like fed plant who's just here to say stupid nonsense to try to get your thousands of followers to say, oh yeah, that sounds good, that sounds good. And then as soon as Andy says something, then you dogpile on him. There, that's my clip. I'll I'll use that. (laughs) One of the marks of a biblical church is that it participates in evangelism, both on an individual level, as in you're just going about your life and you share the gospel with people, but then also there, there are times where you do it with others. Maybe you and your friend say, hey, there's this person, I'm praying for their salvation. Let's pray together for their salvation. And maybe we'll try and think of a way to gang up on them and make them some Fourth of July brownies and have a conversation about Jesus. Or hey, let's a group of us go out and pass out some tracts in the park. Why? Not because we think someone's going to get saved right now. They might, but because God tells us to share the gospel. So we're going to do it out of obedience to Christ, knowing that Christ will be honored and glorified in this action. Personal and corporate evangelism. Number five, committed discipleship. A disciple is a learner or follower of Christ. 
While some churches are built on a one-to-one discipleship model, we strive to integrate discipleship elements into every aspect of the life of our church. Everything from the Sunday service to small groups to group chats to after-church fellowship, everything we do has discipleship in mind. Discipleship is not limited to or even primarily about an hour-a-week meeting, but encompasses the whole of the Christian life. And I've repeated this like a hundred times. Oh, Andy, is your church... Does your church have discipleship? Well, we do, but we don't do what you have in mind. Some people do what you have in mind, i.e., you get together Thursday at 6 a.m. and you have discipleship. But that's not really the definition of discipleship. Discipleship is being a follower of Christ, which looks a little bit more like what Jesus did with his disciples, namely like hour upon hour upon hour of hanging out and then talking about whatever theological things come to mind. That's discipleship. Not just like, oh, did we have our weekly meeting and then we checked that box and we read a chapter of a book. Those things are fine. Those things are good. But that is not synonymous with discipleship. Point six, baptism and communion. We are a Baptist church. Therefore, we practice believer's baptism by immersion. And then I always snarkily add in, we're not going to change that for you. Because there's a lot of people like, oh, well, I'm a Presbyterian, but I want to go to your church because I don't like my local Presbyterian options. So can I just not have to get baptized because, you know, I was baptized as a Catholic? And we're like, sorry, we, I don't say this to be mean. And this isn't about you. We've had 50 of these conversations over the last seven years. So we practice believer's baptism by immersion. And it's a wonderful thing. I love it. It's my favorite, other than the hassle of actually making it happen, I love the act of baptisms. I love that time. I love hearing testimonies. I love seeing y'all come up to the front and gather around. And then the person gets in and I get in and it's icy cold and like nearly have a heart attack from being dunked. I, I just love that whole thing. I get a little tears in my eyes. We did them back in like December, some time ago, this, the, the tail end of a conference that we did and John Benzinger was here and Michael Fallon was here and some others were here and they were just overwhelmed. Like they were crying at the end of it. Beyond baptism, we also practice close communion. There are three positions, open, close, and closed. Open communion is what I affectionately call y'all come, which is Anyone, everyone, kind of a free-for-all. It's just anybody can take this. There might be a little um, hat tip towards like, oh, well, you know, this is just for Christians, but you're still passing it out. Every single person in the building is holding the tray. You know, you're just passing it along the way you would pass an offering bucket along. So there is no meaningful fence. There is no meaningful limitation whatsoever. It is very much open communion. And there's close communion, which would teach that you need to be a member of a church in order to partake. And then closed communion is you need to be a member of this church to partake. Oftentimes, closed and close communion look interchangeable, and they often are. Um, but what it, the difference between the two would mean that if we had, let's say, a guest speaker who is here, or your brother who is a Christian is here on vacation and he's a member in good standing of his church in Alabama and he wants to take communion, then that's fine. A church that holds to closed communion would say, no, this is only for our members. I understand why they do that. And as a matter of fact, our previous church did that as well, just for simplicity's sake. 
but technically we, we practice close communion. So what that would mean is if we have a guest speaker who's with us on communion, they could participate in the Lord's table. If the Apostle Paul was with us, he could participate in the Lord's table. Um, if Jesus was here, he could participate in the Lord's table. And this position is the historic position on communion, even though it's not the standard practice today. But it is still taught in modern Baptist confessions of faith, including the BFM 2000, which is the Southern Baptist doctrinal statement. So 47,000 churches across America, out of those 47,000, probably 46,900 of them are ignoring this. And they're just doing open communion. Because it gets a little awkward when you tell someone, sorry, I can't give this to you. Why? Well, because you've been attending this church for 22 years and you refuse to join because you don't want to submit to the authority of the church. You don't want to have any sort of accountability, any sort of discipline. And you know that, and we know that, we all know that, and that's why we should not be giving you communion. If you want to take communion, you also have to sign on to the rest of the package, namely commitment and accountability. Um, What close communion means is that we invite all believers who are walking in obedience to Christ and are members of a local gospel church to partake with us. So um, with as far as baptism goes, we have right mode and right subjects. Uh, Right mode is from the word baptizo, which means literally to immerse, and then the right subjects is because no one is baptized in the New Testament without a profession of faith. Not one. There is not a single person baptized in the New Testament who does not have a profession of faith which is the reason why this is mentioned, baptism and salvation, synonymously in a couple of places where it says believe and be baptized and you're saved. Why? Because they believed and then they were baptized and so then they're like, hey, now I'm a Christian. Yeah, that's the typical process. Acts 2.38, 1 Peter 3.21. Some baptism verses, Matthew 28.19 and 20. Mark 16, 16, Acts 2, 38, Acts 22, 16, Romans 6, 3 through 4. Y'all can look those up on your own. Uh, communion verses. Uh, the Lord's table is also used in, in, in change for the word communion. And then um, from Catholic and Anglican backgrounds, they'll use the word Eucharist. Uh, Eucharist means giving of thanks, referring to the prayer that takes place before the Uh, celebration of the the Lord's table. Uh, Luke 22, Acts 2, 4, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 Corinthians 11. Um, Acts 2, 4 is the only one I'll read right now because I read the other ones quite a bit. Um, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Theologians believe that when Acts 2.42 says this, when it refers to the breaking of bread, the breaking of bread is referring to what we would call the Lord's table. Um, moving forward, point seven, spiritual fellowship. Um, fellowship is not synonymous with food, though it may include food. What promotes fellowship is the Holy Spirit, who indwells each member of the body of Christ. This reality promotes a spiritual vitality when believers get together, even if there is no specific agenda. A handful of true Christians can hang out and be enormously encouraged because they have fellowship produced by the Holy Spirit. Again, Acts 2.42 says, They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in breaking of bread, and in prayers. Point eight, sacrificial giving. The New Testament calls for believers to give joyfully and sacrificially. 
2 Corinthians 9, 6-7 says, This I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, but he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Point 10, accountability and discipline. Two errors are easy to fall into, no discipline whatsoever and hypercritical legalism. We strive to avoid both of these errors by preaching the word of God and having scripture set the boundaries of our conduct. We want to draw lines where God draws his lines. Our natural inclination is to go above and beyond the word in an effort to control matters of conscience. So we must keep the gospel always before us as the antidote to legalism and license. When a member begins to turn against the gospel, we seek their restoration. If they persist, we will eventually remove them from membership and regard them as an unbeliever in need of evangelism. Three primary texts tied to this topic, Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, and Titus 3. Um, these three texts, this was sort of broke a bit of my Baptist, strict Baptist thinking uh, when I studied this through um, TMS influences. Um, even though, So the Master's Seminary and people in that world are, they're Baptists, but they're not like strict Baptists. And so in that, they're like, hey, look at these texts. All these texts don't have the identical uh, protocol for the Lord's, uh, for, for church discipline. It's not, they're not bringing it all before the entire church. They're not voting on it. They're not, there might be some reference to a vote in one of the texts, but they're not all like that. And so recognizing that there's actually different ways in which these things are done, um, seeing 1 Corinthians 5 and Titus 3 was eye-opening. And for that, I listened to a sermon from John Benzinger and his uh, church on this, on this issue. In Titus 3, uh, the divisive person is just straight up removed from the church. I think it's one warning, then a second warning, then they're done. They're out. They don't get three, four chances. They don't get to appeal. They're not having some kind of church trial. It's just you warn them once, then twice, and then you throw them out the door. The other passage is Matthew 18 is a bit more of a deliberate process. Uh, point 10, qualified leadership. While a plurality of elders is the biblical ideal, a hard requirement is that elders or pastors be biblically qualified according to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. This is a preaching teaching office, and according to scripture, only qualified men may be elders. Deacons are those who are specially recognized due to their service in the church. These qualifications are also essential to maintain, 1 Timothy 3. According to scripture, this office is open to both men and women. Uh, biblical terms... Uh, there are three terms that provide the job description for pastors. Uh, this pastor, elder, overseer. These are the three terms. So number one, pastor, pastor or shepherd. And the Greek word is poimen. It's a term referring to one who tends sheep or watches out for sheep or feeds sheep or leads sheep or defends them. The shepherd is among the sheep. The shepherd knows the sheep. This is not like one of those... Uh, Helicopter shepherds, I don't know if you've seen videos on Facebook of like the, the farmers who are just flying around in helicopters chasing their cattle and their sheep. And it looks like fun, but that's not a biblical shepherd. Um, the shepherd is among them. The shepherd knows them and the sheep know him. There's a relationship there between them, respect, care, mutual love. A sheep knows his shepherd and a natural... And a natural healthy affection exists between them. Remember John 10? My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. 
Jesus is the good shepherd. We know him, he knows us. We love him, he loves us. They've been through a lot together, the shepherd and sheep. The shepherd was there when the lamb was born and he carried her before she could walk. He searched for her when she strayed and brought her back when she got into trouble. When the sheep are surrounded by wolves, the shepherd runs toward the danger rather than fleeing from the danger. He calls to the sheep with great urgency and drives the wolves away without holding back for, fearing of fear, for fear of looking a little too zealous. These are preachers. This is the job of a preacher. This term, pastor, is often used to speak of a lead pastor or a preaching pastor or a senior pastor. But all three terms, pastor, elder, overseer, refer to the same office in the church, though the three terms have different points of emphasis and give a job description for different types of people who occupy that office. Secondly, elder. The word elder is the word presbutero. These were typically older men who were recognized for their wisdom and leadership in the community. You remember the elders of Israel, both the Old and the New Testament, Uh, It's a term that was brought from the Jewish community, men who would sit at the city gate and judge cases or members of, they could also have been members of the Sanhedrin. The term was brought into the church and indicates wisdom and sobriety. Serious-minded people who can deal with complex and difficult issues. It's not necessarily an age in terms of being older because Paul told Timothy, let no one look down on you for your youthfulness, but be an example of the believer, 1 Timothy 4.12. Usually the type of men who get this title of elder are the type of men that we would call lay elders, the typical church that, that uses these kinds of words. And then the third term is the term bishop, bishop or overseer. The Greek word here is episkopos. This should remind you of the word episcopal or episcopalian. A bishop or an overseer, an episkopos, is an administrator, a leader, an overseer, one who looks over the things. In the ancient Greek world, they were inspectors who went around to the various states to observe their administration, like government employees who go to inspect how things are doing. The church has often traditionally made the title of bishop refer to someone who oversees a number of churches, such as the Bishop of New York, who has responsibility for looking after all of the Roman Catholic churches in New York or all of the Anglican pastors or churches in New York. That's what the bishop has traditionally been. In our context, a Baptist way of doing this would be to have someone who is so gifted and skilled that they're often labeled or titled the executive pastor. They're the person who looks after the details. They're the one who makes sure that the budget is balanced. They're particularly gifted and skilled in administration and executive roles. Now, in seminary, they will tell you that the average man who aspires to be a pastor has a strength in one of these three categories and maybe a secondary strength in the second one, and he's got nothing on point three. Point three could be the bishop point, or maybe it's a person who is the skilled uh, overseer, but, and, and they've got a lot of wisdom, like point two, the elders, but they can't preach. Or you've got points one and point three, but you, you know, you've got a 
you're good at preaching, but you don't have as much wisdom and, and leadership. And so what they say is that the degree to which your church grows will be determined in, in human terms. We understand that the Lord grows his church. But in human terms, the church will grow to the degree to which the leadership of the church are either gifted or exercising their gifts in these three categories. And so the limit or the bottleneck on this whole situation is how much can the pastor preach? How much can the pastor elder? How much can the pastor oversee? And so he only has a certain capacity, a certain bandwidth to deal with things. And so that's why it is helpful, good, right, to assemble a a plurality of elders alongside of you who have gifting and strength in other areas, in other categories, because no one person, no one man has uh, the full gifting. Though hopefully, we're not incompetent. Next, uh, after pastors, uh, is deacons. Deacons are servants who are specific, uh, specially gifted and focused on areas of practical service. The Greek word is uh, diakonos. It means servant or minister. Acts 6 describes the seven who were chosen to serve in the care for the Greek-speaking widows in the food distribution during the famine. So a deacon is one who cares for the practical matters. They're the one who cares for getting stuff done. It's not necessarily a preaching office, though you may perhaps have someone like Stephen, who is a deacon, who can preach. But he would have been a deacon who's on an elder track. But Phoebe, the deaconess described in Romans 16, is not on the elder track. If for no other reason, then she is a woman, and the Bible makes it clear that to be a pastor, you need to be a man. But nevertheless, Phoebe has very real responsibilities, and she is a wonderful servant of the Lord who serves in her local church in particular ways. Now, we've spoken about biblical terms such as um, pastor, elder, overseer, deacon, in their Greek words, but there's also practical terms that sometimes um, people either use or see. Terms like trustee. The word trustee is not a biblical term, not a biblical office, but it is a practical term that New York State requires. You have to have trustees to incorporate a church. There are words like coordinators and directors and administrators. When I was more of a nine marks purist, or as they would call themselves, nine Marxists, you would be like, oh, you can't have these things. It's wrong for your church to have trustees or coordinators or directors or administrators. You have to have the terms described in the Bible. It's either your elder of music or your deacon of finance or your deacon of technology or like that sort of thing. I say, well, that's lovely. Your church has been in existence for 150 years and you have a thousand people and an $8 million budget and you can just hire whatever you want. You're in a very different situation than we are right now. Plus, we also don't want to make the same mistakes we've made previously, which was laying hands on people too quickly, giving people titles, giving people roles and responsibilities that they are really enthusiastic for but haven't really been tested and we don't actually know what they are really all about. 
But if you just think with me about deacons, what, who are deacons and what do deacons do? Well, as my dad would say, well, deacons deek. Deacons serve. Deacons coordinate things. They direct things. They administrate things. So I don't think that it's wrong to use these other terms until more formal titles are in place. Let's keep moving, though, because it's 907. Point 11, fervent prayer. Prayer is to be as natural to the Christian as breathing. We pray both privately and publicly. We pray as individuals and in groups. We pray because we believe in the power of God. A lot of times you hear people, I believe in the power of prayer. No, we believe in the power of God. The intercession of Christ and the help of the Spirit who prays for us when we don't know how to pray. That's the reason why we do this. We pray because of those things, not because prayer in and of itself has some sort of power. And point 12, global missions. We seek to spread the gospel to all areas of the world. We have a special concern to see the gospel preached in areas with little to no gospel access and the establishment of biblically regulated healthy churches in every area on earth. This is the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 19, and 20 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Uh, John 20, 21. So Jesus said to them, Peace be to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Acts 1, 8. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, wrapping this up. There are things that are good things, that are not the mission of the church. What do we do with that? I believe and I argue for the, the church's mission is the Great Commission. It is the making disciples. It's not just evangelism, but it includes evangelism, and then it includes seeing people grow into Christ-likeness. So where do other good ventures fit in? There are lots and lots of good things. I just listed a handful, but uh, business things, economic things, wealth creation, Housing, building housing, food. You're a, you're a cook, you're a chef, you feed people. Feeding the hungry. Um, politics, uh, organizing or, or leading a city or a state or a nation. Or doing things like digging wells, providing water for people. Orphan care, anti-abortion ministry, health care, hospitals, nurses, dental care. These are all good things but they're not the same as the Great Commission. Not all good ventures are the mission of the church. But the fact that something is not the mission of the church does not mean that thing is not legitimate. That thing can still be very much legitimate even though it's not the mission of the entire church. So my conclusion is that we practice these things as individuals within the church not necessarily as individual individuals, but like, yeah, you and others. But it doesn't mean the entire church has to be on that mission. The, the entire church doesn't have to be on the mission of helping people get healthy. Though perhaps that is what you're all about. Maybe you are a personal trainer and dietitian, and your passion, the thing that you're committed to, is helping people go from dying of being overweight to being fit. And that's a good thing. But that doesn't mean that we need to change the church from being a church to get rid of all the pews and just make it a big gymnasium. But the fact that I said that doesn't mean that I'm dissing your career. 
Your career is a good thing. It is probably a good thing anyway. (laughs) But what happens is if we all have the mission of the church as the Great Commission, then what happens, people get saved and they go from Team Satan to Team Jesus, Team Darkness to Team Light, and now in any of these areas, they can help start getting it together. Whether that means reorienting their politics from like pure Satanism to something that's a little less diabolical or helping be involved with orphan care or the anti-abortion ministry. Or maybe going on a medical missions trip. I'd rather not use the word missions to refer to that because it's not strictly missions because it's not the Great Commission. But these things typically are used in evangelism. So the church's mission is the Great Commission, which is making the disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, and the power of the Spirit to the glory of God the Father. This is the mission of the church, and it is our mission as a church. It is 9-12, so let's pray. If you have any questions, you can stick around after and talk to me, but I don't want all of you um, stuck for that. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love the church. You've sent your son, Jesus, to die for the church. I pray that the church would increasingly become to more and more people the dearest place on earth. That each of us would grow in our love for the church because we see that you love the church. That we would not have a hostile or cynical attitude towards the church because we see her imperfections, but that we would humbly recognize that we are the cause of a great many of those imperfections, but we have a perfect Savior. I pray that you'd use this lesson tonight to help your people, to strengthen each of us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.